Hello, and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from US showrunner Adi Hassack about his latest project, a single location drama starring Anna Friel, in part a response to the spiralling production costs he believes are crippling the industry. And Klinos Griffin-Williams, head of international for Welsh indie Wildflame, discusses the challenges of building an overseas co-production strategy amidst a pandemic. Adi Hassack is the creator of NBC Jennifer Lopez drama series Shades of Blue, Eyewitnesses for USA Network, and upcoming 1972 Munich Olympics massacre drama Margot for Nordic streamer Viaplay. Over the last decade, he's increasingly focused on working outside the US, and he told Michael Picard about his latest project, The Box, a single location drama starring Anna Friel, also for Viaplay, and why he believes the US has lost its place on the global TV stage amid spiralling production costs and out-of-control corporatization. The Box is a show that I came up with actually way before the virus. It's a very virus-friendly show. It's a one-location show. I came into it, I was very much a fan of the Israeli format in treatment, which played with Gabriel Burns on HBO. It wasn't necessarily my type of show, but it was fascinating what they did and what a huge hit it became. I think it got remade in 15 or 20 languages, and it was a one-location show. And what I really admired about it, it just delivered on such wonderful drama at a cost. I mean, I have big issues with the escalating costs to production that are completely out of control, thanks to our friends at Apple and our friends at Amazon and a bunch of other places. It's become insane. So I wanted to come up with my version of a one location show, almost as a collective fuck you to the business, to say I can. And the challenge really was, can I deliver a show that people will want to watch in a 30 minute format and have it be one location? And that's kind of how I came up with it. Um, initially, it was developed by a company that no longer exists. So there's no need to bring them up. It was going to be a uh, an interrogation show. And then I realized, well, if it was 1992, that might work. Who the hell is going to watch eight episodes of people talking to each other across the table? And then the other thing I realized was I'm not David Mamet. I have nothing interesting to say as a dialogue, as a writer of dialogue. So the, the show kind of started to evolve into supernatural and horror, at which point the uh, uh, initial company that developed it looked at me like, what the fuck is this? It's the equivalent of you hiring me to paint your house white, going on vacation coming back and I painted it blue and you're like what have you done and I'm like well I painted your home and you're like but you said you were going to paint it white and I say yes but you'll get used to it blue is a really great color so that experience just didn't work out well you know with the initial production company and then I turned to my friends you know at the net and via play who I'm partners with on numerous projects and they just jumped at it and, and the, the challenging thing here of this show which is something that I'm embracing I think that with peak tv Shows have to challenge the viewer and, and keep them engaged. I don't think you can do a show anymore that's, you know, a cop shows up to a city and he resolves a murder. I think the, the, the show has to flip on itself several times within a season to keep the viewer engaged. And that's, in fact, so what the initial production company saw as a weakness, I saw as a strength. A show that starts, you think it's a cop interrogation show. Oh, my God, there's a supernatural component to it. Oh, my God, it ends up being horror. The show evolving that way, you know, hopefully will make it an engaging show and one that people, you know, want to see. Because I'm, most of my business is international until five years ago, when I would go to any one of my Scandinavian or European partners, the first question would be, well, who's the American broadcaster? And if I didn't have one, they were like, well, come back when you have one. Now it's the opposite. Now it's like, no, 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 don't talk to your American friends. Um, so it was fascinating to see the show. This is an American show. For all intents and purposes, I'm an American. I was born in Holland. I'm an Israeli, but I'm an American writer creating an American show that is shot in Scandinavia, which will be interpreted 
interpreted by his Scandinavian director and a Scandinavian crew. And then I turned to Anna Friel, this amazing British actress. And I think that the way this show came together is the future of what I call global television, in which America, and some of the Americans haven't figured this out yet, but they will, is a monster market, but another market. It's no longer, you know, someone told me that in the past, you could take a mediocre American show would play better than a really, really good local show. As long as it was American, even if it was a shitty American cop show, medical show, the numbers were higher than local content. We've seen that in reverse. You know, people are starving now for local content. And if it's an American show, you know, it better be a really, really good show. And you're going to see Americans right now who are buying. I mean, because the Americans aren't in production. You're seeing, you know, company like the Peacock just launched. You know what I'm saying? So they're buying British shows. You know, you're going to see much more of an interchange, you know, with uh, local content, English-speaking content. So kind of everything came together, you know, with the show. And um, we shoot it um, um, February 15th. I went to Anna Friel because she's amazing and awesome, but also because she's a stage actress. Um, it's very difficult you know, to put actors in a room in a one location for eight episodes. It was important for me, you know, to bring in the lead actors and have somebody with stage experience, which of course, you know, she has. And, um, you know, here we are. Great. And so, I mean, can you just tell us a bit about the story and I guess who, who does Anna play? And it's an anthology. So what's kind of the hook for the series that we might see in, in future seasons? Right. It's a Kafka-like universe. I mean, it all take, the box, by the way, is police slain for um, an interrogation room. So all seasons will happen in a box. In this episode, she plays a Kansas City detective who had a, a suspect of a murder um, hang herself inside the interrogation room. And we meet her a year later and she's starting to lose her mind or is she? Um, and that's where the psychological comes in. And that's where the supernatural comes in. And like all good horror, like all good supernatural, the themes here are good and evil. It's a story about good people who can do bad things and bad people who can do good things. One could say, you know, it's like Black Swan, the journey, you know, that she takes, which was really about the artistic obsession for perfection. Here it's about just, you know, it's, it's you think you're watching a cop show, but it evolves into something, you know, very, you know, very, very different. And, and you mentioned that obviously you've got a, a good relationship with Viplay. I mean, what, what's the dynamics between you as a, an American showrunner and, and them as a, a Scandi streaming platform? How do you work together? Ten years ago, I started realized, oh my God, there's a, there's a market out there across the pond. So I started traveling around the world. Um, started going to MIPCOM. Didn't know that in Europe, you need to hand out business cards. I was writing my name on napkins. I was running around MIPCOM. Nobody wanted to talk to me and I was writing my name on napkins. But I slowly started to engage, you know, um, European production companies, European broadcasters, um, Germany, France, and then met this amazing group of people in Viaplay, you know, um, Scandinavia out of all places. Most of my American friends still think Scandinavia is a country. Um, but I met this Swedish company and I realized quickly that the market was changing and it was becoming international. And when I met these gentlemen, and it really is about 10 years ago, I realized, you know, when the next big show like a Breaking Bad comes out of Viaplay, this business will flip on its head. The days where all the shows came out of America is over. Last year during the holidays, my children who were American for all intents and purposes, were having German come out of their laptops and computers. And they were watching Dark. Dark was the big show last year. And that blew my mind. And, they, and Netflix was telling them to watch it in English. And they were like, fuck you guys. We want to watch it in local language. So the whole business is evolving. And I realized it's becoming global. And there, you know, there's no such thing anymore like loyalty to brand like in the old days. Like in America, on Sunday, you would watch HBO. And if it wasn't The Sopranos, it was Six Feet Under. And if it wasn't Six Feet Under, you know, it was something else. 
That doesn't exist anymore. People, There is no loyalty to the brand anymore, as much as the big corporations don't want to hear about that. There's a loyalty to content. And if there's a loyalty to content that a company like Viaplay, which is a huge company, by the way, that many Americans don't know, but that doesn't mean anything. You know, they're huge in the Baltics, they're huge in Scandinavia, can become competitive with the other streamers, with the Netflix and the Amazons of the world. And you see a company like Viaplay getting into English content, which is really sexy and really wonderful. You know, so they have just become natural partners of mine. They're invested deeply um, in three of my next shows. And it's not like the old days, you know, where you would come to Via Play for the breadcrumbs at the end. Oh, we'll sell Scandi. Scandi is a huge territory. And they're taking a leadership position in creating content. And so the marriage has been one. It's just been a really wonderful marriage, you know, both for me as a creator, um, you know, and both for them. And so you've announced this new show. I mean, what, what's it been like developing it over the last few months in a global pandemic? How have you had to adjust and, and work over the last few months to, to kind of continue working on your shows? Well, listen, you know, it's funny, right? As writers, we're locked in our rooms for long periods of time with the knowledge that we can leave whenever we want. Um, we don't, but we're still, we have the knowledge that we can break out. Now there's no breaking out. So when I wrote in the past, I would never leave my room, but I knew that I could. Now all I want to do is leave my room, but I have nowhere to go. And it, you know, the irony being I'm writing a show about a cop who ends up finding herself locked inside an interrogation room, which she can't escape. So to say that it's been a heady, trippy several months would be an understatement. I will say I was not taking, as far as I know, any any drugs while I was writing it, but it was a trippy process because here I was locked literally in my home and in my office writing a show about a cop who literally gets locked. So it was a pretty, uh, it was a pretty heady, uh, heady adventure. And I guess... As you look forward to getting into production, um, you've talked about just having one location, which I'm sure will be beneficial in the current environment. But what other steps have you had to take to kind of make sure you can get into production at some point? Well, that's a great, you know, it's a great question. I mean, um, look, let me say originally I came up with it. Well, I just wanted to do a one location show as a challenge. And I wanted to do a show for a lower budget and deliver the pop. Then this pandemic hit us and we had a show that actually, if it can be Corona friendly, but to give you an example, we had to boost production pass up the back because initially we were going to all meet at the end of the year to rehearse, do technical rehearsals with the actors, and then come back in January and shoot. At which point, someone said, "Well, that's a pretty bad idea. Getting everyone to Stockholm, sending them all home so they can get you know caught up with this pandemic and bring in the back. So we can't do that. So now production has to start in January. At which point we quarantine everyone. Our actors will be Brits. They all know they won't be able to go home for the weekends, and we're pretty much going to quarantine." ourselves, you know, with a prep period, you know, four weeks and the shoot period of around 28 days, at which point we're really going to be locked in, you know, and make the show and hope that it goes, um, hopefully as it should, Corona free. And you've spoken about the fact it's eight half hour episodes of drama and we're seeing more half an hour drama series coming out. I mean, how do you view that format in terms of the traditional hour format and, and why is that something you wanted to pursue? Well, here's the thing. I mean, some old geezer in the 1940s, someone decided sometime that drama shall be an hour and comedy shall be 30 minutes. Well, we've evolved since then. I'm not saying for the better, but we have evolved. Who's got 10 hours for anything or eight hours for anything? You know, so I feel it's natural for dramas to go down to 30 minutes, for comedies to go down to 10 minutes. You know, Quibi kind of tried to do it. It hasn't worked the way they wanted to, but the idea overall was the right idea. I mean, I think today I'm, I get so depressed when I think about my long form shows. I mean, who's got 13? Really think who's got 13 hours to do anything? Like everyone else, I watch my show with my phone in one hand, my iPad in the other hand. The moment I'm bored, 
bored, I stop watching. So it's a challenge. And, and our, it's just the way it is. I have three children who just have different viewing habits. My oldest son, it is in his late 20s, he'll binge and watch all 10 episodes. My middle son is in his mid-20s, he'll watch episodes 1, 3, and 10. And my daughter, who's 19, won't watch anything longer than two minutes. So I'm raising the demos in my home and I'm seeing their viewing habits. And it is what it is. We can argue about it. We can do whatever we want. You know, we can say, yes, but David Lean, you know, made Lawrence of Arabia. And it's an epic, you know, it is what it is. You know what I'm saying? And our viewing habits are getting shorter and the window is getting smaller and we have to adjust. It's difficult. You know, a guy like me, I've been writing, I've been in the hour of business now for 15 years. I thought this is going to be so awesome. I'm going to write half the pages that I do usually. It's hard. It's hard to tell a story in 30 minutes, a whole different set of rules. So the script stage has been much more challenging than I foresaw because I'm so used to writing our dramas and writing a 28 minute drama is very, very different. So it's been extremely challenging, but you're seeing more of it in Europe, a little bit less of it. The Americas are kind of pushing it off, but in my opinion, that's where it's going. You're going to see dramas, you know, they're going to be much shorter, you know, than, uh, you know, than 60 minutes. And just looking, I guess, at the wider industry, it's going through a bit of a change, I guess, at the moment, as we adjust to a new normal. I mean, what are some of the, the issues that you find are in the, the industry at the moment around the world and, and how would you like to see them change going forward? Well, complete fucking chaos, you know what I'm saying? Um, which is great, by the way. I'm an anarchist at heart and I like to say when nothing works, everything works. But it is absolute chaos. No one knows what the hell's going on. No one knows, you know, it's funny, I'm old enough to remember the 70s. Studios then were making these crazy movies like it's a mad, mad world and Martin Scorsese was making Main Streets, you know what I'm saying? So everyone, you know, the instinct was blue sky, blue sky, everybody wants blue sky. You know, but you know, something no, people don't just want blue sky. So try to figure out what the consumer wants, which is something that I don't worry about. I just write what I want to write, and if it sticks, it sticks. But I wouldn't want to be a broadcaster right now. And then there's a corporate corporatization, you know, of our business, which I'm sure makes accountants and lawyers very happy, but is destroying our business. Nothing good will come out of these mergers from a creative point of view. And with all due respect to the mergers, they can put a thousand writers under contract. Who's to say that the thousand and first writer that isn't under contract isn't the one, you know. You know, to, you know, to create the next big hit. But um, it's become very corporate. It's very corporate heavy. And I don't think it's going to help turn out better product. So what I'm doing is searching out companies like Bioplay, who is a huge multi-billion dollar company, but there's a face, there's a CEO, there's somebody to talk to, there's someone to look look at it and explain what you want to do. And so that's my constant search. And I see that more with the European companies than with the American companies that have become so corporate heavy. I mean, what is this monster that's called Disney, Fox, whatever it is? You know, how many divisions does Netflix have? But if you look at the European companies, you know, um, I, I have a one-on-one interaction Action with the CEOs of those companies. And I can sit with them and we can discuss what I want to do. And there's just somebody home to talk to. And um, that is fleeing and disappearing in the States. It's a problem. And the other problem is this whole thing of vertical ownership. There's all this pressure on broadcasters to own their shows, to distribute their shows. Um, but you can't quantify creative. You know, you can make a billion of these computers, the exact same computers that you and I are conversing, but you can't do that in television. If you look at how many showrunners have created more than one hit show, they're, they're a handful. So I think that is the chaos kind of that we're caught up in. And you're going to see more and more, I think, alliances with European companies, you know, American companies. And the last thing is that America is becoming another territory. I know they don't like to hear it. It's a fact, but they are. I mean, they're a big territory, but they're another territory. The bottom line is Viaplay is financing. We have three shows we're doing with Viaplay. One of them we're doing with Viaplay and Leo 9. These are all fully financed shows that are greenlit that have no American partner. When we're ready, we'll come to the Americans. We're not ready. We're not interested and we're financed. So I think you're going to see more of that playing out as the years uh, 
Sort of I mean, how long do you think it would take for COVID to kind of shake out and, and things to settle down and, and we find ourselves back in a kind of production cycle of, you know, regularly developing and producing shows and getting them on the screen in a year, 18 months turnaround as we've become used to? You know, I don't know. Listen, we're all in denial. I mean, we have three shows that are theoretically going into production next year. The only one I can assure you that will go into production is The Box because it's a one location show. Um, my other show, you know, you know, um, Margot, which is a, a kind of a uh, the aftermath of the Munich Olympics massacre is huge. It takes place in Europe and East Europe and Israel, you know, in Morocco. I mean, when are we ever going to do that? Who can travel, you know, do that? You know, I don't know. It's a problem. It's a big problem here in the States. Um, you know, what happens, God forbid, when number one, number two or on the call sheet or a PA, you know, gets infected. It's it's part of the chaos that we're in. So we're kind of in this weird situation, certainly in the States where there's the cupboards, the shelves are full of development. Everyone's developing, but no one's shooting. You know what I'm saying? So that also, you know, and, you know, as, as time moves forward, how many of the shows that were developed six months ago are relevant today or shows that are relevant today will be relevant, you know, in 18 months so it's, um, you know, it's a clusterfuck, as we say, you know, and I don't know how we get out of it or when we get out of it. Having said that, you know, you see, the, I mean, the, you know, theatrical is just bleeding and hemorrhaging and, and um, boy, am I happy I'm out of that business. But the question will be, you know, who can produce content and, and get it out? Who, travel restrictions. I mean, we don't know. You know, we're hoping to go and be in Stockholm. Who knows where we'll be in Stockholm, you know, and what if Anna Friel can't get from the UK to Stockholm? What happens if I can't get from the US to Stockholm? So there's all these obstacles and no one has answers for and um you know it's a shame because there is hunger now we have nothing left to do but sit in front of our televisions or our computers or our tablets and watch content but it's going to be very very difficult i think you know it's also psychological just the fear of, of, of putting shows into production you know i think will be with us for you know for quite some time adi hasak Restrictions around the world are shifting rapidly as national and local governments adopt their own strategies for tackling the resurgent COVID-19 pandemic. From Friday in the UK, Wales will take its own measures with a two-week firebreak lockdown in a bid to reduce the spread. Klinos Griffin-Williams, head of international for Cardiff-based indie Wild Flame, spoke to Clive Whittingham prior to these latest developments about how the company has adapted to the ongoing crisis and the challenges of building an overseas co-production strategy within the present context. We've been, like everybody else, completely blindsided by everything that happened. We were busy at the beginning of the year and looking positive to having an even busier year ahead. And then, obviously, COVID sort of brought everything to a standstill as one production after the other fell away as it felt at the time. And also we had a, an international sort of strategy in terms of our growth and our ambition that we've been working on for probably the last 12 to, to 18 months, really. And, and the feeling of all of that just going out the window and disappearing. You know, we, like most other production companies, had to pause productions. We had to lose freelancers for a short time. We put some of our staff on furlough and went down to a skeleton team to keep things going. I'm really glad that we did keep, decide to keep going and keep that skeleton staff rather than put everything on pause because it meant that we kept those relationships, we kept plugging away, we got a few quick turnaround COVID commissions and kept those really important commissioner dialogues going throughout. And then as things began to ease up, as we started to navigate a way of filming safely, of putting those sort of risk assessments in place and all of those procedures, then we started getting everything back up and running. We had a few projects for BBC at the time um, that are now back filming. The same for some of our S4C returnable 
slate of things. And then the big difficulty was, can we still do those big international productions? You know, and we work in terms of co-productions in in a couple of different ways. We do the co-productions as in broadcast co-production and then co-productions as a producer co-production. And all of them have their own challenges anyway, let alone in in a sort of a COVID world. And also, you know, can we film abroad? Can we get those productions back and running? And I'm pleased to say, you know, we're filming in Iceland, got upcoming shoots in Norway and and in other areas. And then also we've got shoots in the US, which seemed completely unfathomable at one point, but we're approaching it differently. We're using remote crews, we're remote producing, you know, remote editing has become something that we're all incredibly used to doing now. And um, we've had to adapt quickly. And and thankfully it means that we can bring on the freelance of staff back and that whilst we're looking at a really challenging year ahead in terms of figuring out all of these extra layers of issues that are coming on board and some of them we know some of them we're still trying to figure out but it does mean that we are able to progress we're able to carry on with our productions and and move things on so it almost feels like we've come full circle really and we're really excited because we've got a lot of kind of upcoming things to talk about and some sort of exciting times for the rest of the year but they will be challenging. Obviously it's a fast-moving situation how big a concern or fear is that at the moment that just as the production seems to be getting back up to some sort of normality what would a second lockdown mean? It's a huge concern because the safety of our staff uh, of everybody that's on the production and the general public is always and always has been at the forefront of our mind and and in you know these challenging times where we've got all sorts of unforeseen sort of threats and different new procedures that we've got to put in place and make sure that they're sort of airtight and that they're adhered to and the fact that all of the, these precautions remember we're in Wales the, the rules in Wales are very different you know to the ones in Scotland to the ones in England if we've got shoots in, in Europe then we, we have to adhere to those sort of local guidelines as well so trying to navigate all of that is incredibly difficult we use external uh, consultancy company um, to, to help us in terms of making sure that all of our health and safety is is as watertight as it can be and that we're reducing risk as much as we can um i think it'll be different this time you know we're, we're more prepared for it put it that way you know we have adapted quite quickly to be able to remote film whether that's sending a camera an individual camera person and remote producing things or whether that's sending cameras to contributors um, and and helping them go through the filming process or whether that's you know making sure that we can film with smaller crews that are more mobile and, and we're reducing the risk we know that we can film through this but you know it's it, We've still got to think of not necessarily all of our contributors are going to want to film through this. Things change on a daily, sort of hourly basis. And I think we are trying to be as adaptable as we can and be as sensible as we can and appreciate that, you know, everybody is going through different pressures and that we have to respond and respect that. And I think this is where the dialogue with our sort of commissioning editors and our production management teams within the broadcasters is really cemented because we're in constant dialogue with them to let them know this is what's possible, this is what's not. I I think there's definitely more flexibility coming towards us from that front and a real want to be in it together, really. You know, we're all navigating these sort of choppy waters and we're all trying to figure out the safest way to do that. And so long as we can all adapt, there might be an easier way through than the, the lockdown that was previously. You mentioned you did some quick turnaround stuff. Are you finding now that broadcasters 
aren't really in the market for for covid specific content or even content that looks like it was filmed in covid times or are you, are you still sort of pursuing quick turnarounds and, and covid content in that way i think the audience is fed up with it aren't they you know we all we're, we're all fed up with zooms they're a bit training <laughs> Um, we're all definitely fed up of, of watching them on the telly. I think, you know, the audience will have, has adapted quickly to realising that, you know, there's a global pandemic gone on and, and we can't produce content in the way that we previously have. But also there's there's the constant need for content and for it to be premium content. And people, whilst they'll accept it for a little while, they're sort of over it. And I think, you know, you want escapism from the TV that you're watching. You want to be taken out of that and not reminded of it. So for us, certainly, in, in terms of our factual programming, even the programmes that we were doing during lockdown, while some of them are UGC or sort of educational stuff, one of our shows was a, a makeover show. That, and, and for all intents and purposes, if you look really closely, you can tell it was done in a pandemic because people are further away, apart and, and we've done everything really safely. But the quality of what we have tried to produce is still really high. And I think going forward, we're looking at, you know, what what's the factual content that can be be produced safely is it that we're taking people into bubbles is it that we're having more control over things you know we can't just be wandering around or knocking on doors you know people don't want that people want to feel safe in terms of production when they're seeing production being made but also if you're part of a show you want to feel safe but at the same time we we need to create sort of content that is still high quality and delivering on that sort of editorial ambition I guess that editorial ambition just has to be realistic of, of what can be achieved. Let's talk about your international co-production strategy because that seemed to be in place before all of the horrors of, of 2020 but possibly more important now because broadcasters are going to have tighter budgets co-production is a good way to, to make up the money I guess. Is, it, is, is that the key attraction or is there are there other things that are leading you down that path for your international expansion? I think you know budgets are tight and when you've got more than one funding partner it, it absolutely helps but also you know you've, you've got additional skill sets you can sort of rely upon so for instance you know if we're doing international co-productions from a co-production point of view we want to do a foreign shoot and we have a partner in that country it reduces the risk and it allows us to be able to deliver and if we're talking about sort of broadcast co-producers then absolutely you know they're, they're bigger budgets they're incredibly ambitious we want to take our content globally uh, we're really proud of the fact that we're um, coming out of Wales and I guess that's the interesting thing about the situation we're in now you know we talk about in the UK nations and regions are such an important part of the discussion but that can be a positive and a negative and I think internationally it doesn't matter so much where you are and now when we're all jumping on video calls when we're all sort of building relationships in a really different way that might not be face to face it really doesn't matter where you are geographically and for us our co-production strategy was always being ambitious trying to create bigger better shows and being able to work with the best talent wherever they might be in the world and I think what we have been doing is you know we have a core team of staff here that are dedicated to our development and our and our business growth and then we're bringing in the right people to deliver the programs to work with us in partnership to make sure that we've got the best quality ideas as well as the talent to be able to deliver it. Is it tricky to 
build a company out internationally with an international ambition when, first of all, there are travel restrictions, so it's difficult to go around and film. It's also difficult to go around and meet new people. We don't have an event circuit at the moment with all the networking opportunities that brings. It's really difficult. I think growth internationally as a strategy is a really difficult one to do anyway. Um, You can be as ambitious as you want, but you have to have those relationships in place. You have to be trusted as a producer. You have to have delivered domestically in order to be taken seriously internationally. We've found that our relationships have been absolutely key and those have been long fought for and hard earned. You know, I I think I was told by somebody that it'll take you 18 months to get a solid international or a a big international series. And that was bang on. It's taken time, not just to understand how that international market works, because it works very differently to the domestic market, but also knowing that each of our programs has to be tailored to that specific channel. Everything that we aim for is bespoke for that channel. And, and we sort of nurture those relationships and really care for them. And it, it's it's people that make programs, you know, great ideas can be one thing, but it's the people that you want to work with and the people that you trust. Because in that relationship with a, a commissioning sort of broadcaster, you have to know that you're, you're in it as a partnership and both are bringing separate things. So I think those relationships Relationships were something that we didn't let go of as, as the pandemic hit. And because we didn't do that, because we sort of powered through with those relationships, then they are fruitful now as we are easing or did ease slightly. And they're cemented as we're going into whatever we're going into over the next six months. UK industry has long talked about needing to be less London centric for, for all the, the obvious reasons. There's been a big nations and regions and diversity push in the UK on the face of it over the past year to 18 months it's been it's been a big talking point at Edinburgh and other events previously they could have been accused of just paying lip service to that is it different this time are you seeing change in that area in the UK yes absolutely I think we possibly felt that it has been lip service in the past but there's a real push into uh, the nations and regions and we definitely have uh, contacted more by missioning editors being proactive in terms of getting new contacts and wanting to build new relationships you know I think that the quotas help but also it should be more than that shouldn't it you know we have a huge amount of talent here in Wales um, especially in the factual sector here we don't need to fly everybody in from Bristol or, or London to produce the programs it is about yes having the right talent that can steer the ship but also about giving those opportunities to local talent to be able to grow to be able to work on those big programs so they've got the experience to go on to the next um, and we're only going to do that if we're genuinely investing in the nations and regions and the the crew from the ground up as well as the companies and I think we will always try and have a balance of the right people and um, giving opportunity to young talent or to local talent. Is there a fear that this nations and regions push could be damaged by the challenges facing the UK broadcast or again is it is it different this time? I'm not sure to be honest I hope not I think um, it could be used as a great opportunity to look at you know as a nation's sort of company that are used to doing things for S4C for BBC Wales and possibly um, lower tariffs than than network and we've always tried to produce high quality content on those lower tariffs so we're not frightened of smaller tariffs in a way possibly a London-based company might be We're, we're used to working in that way 
but also there's the opportunity to co-produce. You know, I know S4C are co-producing with Channel 4, Channel 5, ITV. There's, there's ways in which we can look at like, what are the resources that we've got in those nations and regions that we don't have elsewhere and how can broadcasters like Channel 4, Channel 5 work with, with us as we're supplying uh, both of them and then seeing how we can maximise funds that benefit both in a unique way. Possible question, but as we look to 2021 as best you can, what's the roadmap for your company coming out of this and going into next year how does next year look for you guys fortunately currently it's looking really busy um we've had um some exciting commissions in that we are crewing up for now that we are bringing in existing new talent for with those commissions will bring all sorts of their own unique compromises and challenges but i I hope that we'll build upon uh, what we've already been doing we'll have um, more of those international relationships we'll be building reputationally on what we're doing but also we're always reaching out to new commissioning editors to new broadcasters to exciting talent that we can work with and we want a place of growth a place where people are really passionate and we absolutely love what we what we do you know from every member of the team here we're we're really really fortunate to be in this business it's it's a hell of an exciting business and I think that we shouldn't forget how privileged we are to be able to work on all of these sort of diverse exciting projects and I think that what our hope is is to continue building to continue our growth locally because that's incredibly important to us in in terms of sticking to our grassroots and and being a a proud bilingual company as well Um, but also on network and internationally the fact that we are in um, Cardiff is, uh, and Wales is hugely beneficial because we're always looking out, you know, and we're always looking for ways of collaborating with people all over the world. Klinos Griffin-Williams from Wild Flame. That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast tomorrow. But in the meantime, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest developments by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.